Pour yourself a sweet tea, pull up a lawn chair, and turn the page with us. You're listening to Right on Mississippi, a podcast taking you inside the minds of America's most treasured wordsmiths. I'm Ebony Lamumba, and Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's Literary Lawn Party. Hi, I'm Katie Blunt. I'm director of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History, and I'm thrilled to be here for the Mississippi Book Festival panel interview with Kai Bird, an award-winning author, uh, historian, and journalist. He is executive director of the Leon Levy Center for Biography, and he's the author of a number of biographies. Uh, He won the Pulitzer Prize for Biography for American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And his most recent book is The Outlier, The Unfinished Presidency of Jimmy Carter. It is a wonderful biography, and I am uh, excited to talk about it. Kai, tell us a little bit about this book and how you came to write it. Well, thank you, Katie, for having me. I wish I could be in Mississippi in person, but (laughs) COVID intervened. Well, Jimmy Carter's been on my mind, actually, for more than 30 years. Uh, After I finished my first biography in 1992, I was sort of early 91, I was casting around for a new project. And I thought, well, maybe a president would be fun to do. And I was always interested in Carter and his one-term presidency. So I went down to Atlanta and spent two weeks, interviewed a bunch of his aides. The Carter Center had just opened up in Atlanta. And he was doing all these wonderful things with his ex-presidency. This is in 1990. And I thought I'd explore the notion of doing a biography by writing a magazine article, a profile about what he was doing with his ex-presidency. And I did the story. I had a short telephone interview with Carter himself and published the piece. But I concluded that it was too early. His presidential archives were still basically closed. Everything was still classified. This being only 10 years after he'd left the White House. And also I realized from my visit in Georgia that um, I was a foreigner down there. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't understand the accent and I didn't understand his religion, Southern Baptist. I didn't understand the South. I didn't understand race. (laughs) Uh, It was like really a foreign country. And I came back and told my wife that if I was going to do this, we'd have to move to Plains, Georgia. (laughs) 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 and uh, seep into South Georgia and uh, cover it like a foreign correspondent and learn all about the South. And my wife said no. Yeah. (laughs) uh, (laughs) But I I then went on to another project, but I came back to it in 2015. I was still very curious about this guy, Jimmy Carter and his odyssey politically and otherwise. And, um, I, I, you know, I, I spent six years on the book from 2015 to 21. And uh, I still think I don't understand the South, <laughs> but I know well, a little more. <laughs> it's interesting that you say that because um, I was fascinated to read in your prologue that um, that you had intended just to cover the Carter presidency but as you started 
getting into the work, you realized that you really couldn't explain Carter and his presidency without delving into his life growing up in the in the Deep South. Talk about talk about what what led you to that conclusion and then and then how your thoughts about Carter as a Southerner shaped the work. Yeah, no, it it was very clear. I I started out wanting to just do four White House years. Um, So I but when I started to write, I wrote a little introduction about where he had come from and how he had come out of nowhere to win the presidency in a very improbable campaign. And the introduction grew from 10 pages to 20 to 50. <laughs> and then I realized I was writing the whole life. And, you know, it was re- it was an interesting story. I, I just became enthralled with his childhood and yeah. where he came from. And the fact that he really had one foot in the 19th century, mm-hmm. uh, growing up in archery, not even plains, tiny little hamlet outside of plains. And his only playmates were African-American kids, Mm -hmm. the sons and daughters of sharecroppers and tenants. Uh, His father owned probably several thousand acres of land and they grew peanuts and corn. And and, uh, he grew up in a Sears and Roebuck kit house that was put together. There was no running water, no electricity. There was an outhouse in the back and uh, he would argue with his parents every year about whether he had to wear shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just, it's an incredible odyssey that he yeah. came from this 19th century kind of farming community where mules were still pulling plows and became president of the United States. And he was the first president from the Deep South really ever. I don't count a- Andrew Jackson. And, right. uh, and he won the South in 76. And then in 1980, he lost the South. He was rejected by his own people and much of the rest of the country. And, you know, that's a, that's an incredible story. So one interesting aspect of that story is his evolution on race. Uh, he ran it when he ran for governor um, in 1970. Uh, he he ran a fairly traditional white Southern racist. I mean, you could say uh, it was muted racism, but it wasn't that muted campaign. And in fact, he told Vernon Jordan, you won't like my campaign, but you'll like my administration. And then he came out in his inaugural speech and said, the time for discrimination is over. Was that an actual evolution in his heart or just politics? Well, yes, this was his Machiavellian character. He really was extremely ambitious and and very clever. He knew politically what was necessary to get elected. He had run in 66 for governor, and he'd run there a more conventional liberal campaign and mm-hmm. lost, and right. lost to Lester Maddox. And he was just personally ashamed that he had lost to someone like yeah. Lester. Yeah. <laughs> and so he began running almost immediately again. And this time he was going to be ruthless. He mm-hmm. really was, he had decided he would do what was necessary. So as you have hinted, he, he really walked right up to the line with racial dog whistles, talking mm-hmm. about how he understood the concerns of parents and 
rural Georgia who wanted to send their kids to Christian academies. And right. uh, so that was kind of a dog whistle. But at the, at the same time, he was the first Georgia politician who, who was willing to go into African-American churches and campaign. And he felt entirely comfortable there. You know, right. he, he could get up on the in the front of the church and give a rousing sermon. And he knew the hymns and, and he was really comfortable around African-Americans. And yet he was also, you know, talking about, well, you can be conservative, but you don't have to be a racist to be a conservative. And right. <laughs> he was giving all sorts of mixed signals. Right. Um, and he won. Uh, and then on the day he was inaugurated, he famously got up in his speech and said the time for segregation in the South is over. Shocking everyone on the stage. Yeah. And, and it was regarded sort of as a betrayal. Um, yeah. So he, Jimmy Carter's a very complicated guy. You know, Hunter Thompson, the Rolling Stone right. Gonzo journalist, when he first met Jimmy Carter in 1974, he thought he was the most ruthless politician he'd ever seen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, I I wrote down this quote um, that you included. uh, Bill Moyers, after interviewing Carter in 1976, uh, said that he was cold, tough, terrifyingly self-confident. He's not a real Baptist, said Moyer. I know the Baptists. That's uh, rough. Um, and I, did, I didn't really see you pushing back. I mean, obviously, you, you portray him uh, in a more complex way than Bill Moyers. But um, but you don't really push back against this idea that, that he was hard to like, pious, arrogant, self-righteous. Yeah. Is that right? Well, even, you know, even in his 90s. I mean, he's now 96. Uh, next month, he's going to turn 97. And I was interviewing him the last few years and even then he was pretty intimidating yeah (laughs) those bright blue eyes yeah that uh determined sort of relentlessness about him he's devoted to his work i mean he was giving me 45 minutes at a shot for my interviews and he would be looking at his watch <laughs> if he got <laughs> bored because he had work to do. He was right. working to wipe out Guinea worm disease and bring <laughs> peace to the Syrian civil war. And that's what his real concern was. And it's always been work, 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 you know, right. he's still until I think he still sort of keeps farmers hours. He gets up at five thirty or six and, and work is his whole life. And he was right. never he was never very good at glad handing or uh, wheeling and dealing with politicians. Uh, right. That just didn't interest him. He, he was like Obama in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he's a very tough cookie in my mm-hmm. in my book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, his first year, um, as you describe in the book, uh, he was incredibly productive. Um, the Panama Canal Treaty, he had domestic accomplishments on energy, civil rights, social security, student loans, uh, amnesty for draft evaders, um, got rid of some expensive and inefficient defense programs, but he didn't really get credit for uh, his accomplishments then or, or ever. Do you think that was because of his personality or because he was Southern and the Washington establishment refused to take him seriously. 
Well, he was, uh, you know, an odd duck in Washington, D.C., in terms of the Georgetown set and the Washington establishment. They just couldn't figure out who this guy was. And he had a first good year in the White House. Um, and as you are pointing out, he, he had a heavy legislative agenda and passed a lot of it. And he took on some really tough issues like the Panama Canal Treaty. Um, he appointed all sorts of Ralph Naderites to regulatory positions and uh, accomplished a lot on behalf of consumers. So, you know, seatbelts for became mandatory and airbags, thus saving 9,000 American lives every year ever since. Um, but he ran into a lot of sort of cultural disconnect, mm -hmm. I would argue. And yes, it was because he sort of talked funny. <laughs> <laughs> and he, uh, he was never a great sort of orator. Right. He, and he was terrible in front of a TV camera. Um, he was very convincing and empathetic, you know, in a small living room or a small town hall setting uh, where he could be spontaneous, you know, spontaneous. And uh, but he was just terrible at reading a speech. Right. On top of that, he ran into a press corps here in Washington that just was eager to find any fault. I mean, this was just yeah. a few years after Watergate, right. Vietnam, which of course were the two events that probably paved the way for uh, Jimmy Carter to get elected. Right. But for journalists, I, I remember as a young reporter in my 20s here in Washington, I was, you know, my aspiration was to become like Carl Bernstein or Bob Woodward. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> unearth scandal right and, you know, so the he got a really rough uh rough time from the washington press corps sally quinn the style mm -hmm. section reporter married to ben bradley the editor of the washington post was writing these very snarky profiles of right. carter and the georgia boys and hamilton jordan and jody powell and painting them as sort of country bumpkins. Right. And it was really, it was pretty outrageous. Yeah. I, I actually grew up in Washington, D.C. during the Carter years. And I remember that kind of sense of him as a bumpkin, which is so ironic because he was a brilliant man with, you know, wide yeah. interest and accomplishments. I mean, he described himself uh, in his campaign book. He said, I am a Southerner and an American I am a farmer, an engineer, a father and a husband, a Christian, a politician and a former governor, a planner, a businessman, a nuclear physicist, a naval officer, a canoeist, and among other things, a lover of Bob Dylan's songs and Dylan Thomas's poetry. He was not a bumpkin. And that was probably part of what the Washington, the snarky Washington press couldn't accept about him. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, they, they went after him for the Burt. Lance sort mm -hmm. of banking scandal. They actually tried to investigate the peanut warehouse. And uh, there was a sort of mini uh, investigative moment where they alleged that he may have used money from the peanut warehouse in his campaign, which would have been illegal. And, and it, 
it was all a much ado about nothing. Right. He was squeaky clean. He was and yet clean. suffered from coming into office in the aftermath of uh, Watergate. Yeah. Um, you offer really sensitive and complex portrayals of not only Carter, but his aides. Um, and uh, you really, I think, are give a balanced view of their strengths and their faults. Um, and that's those those portrayals are fascinating. Um, but I think, is it fair to say that National Security Advisor Zbigniew Brzezinski was just simply a disaster, that he was obsessed with communism to a degree that distorted his judgment on foreign policy issues? And there wasn't much good to say about his work under on the Carter administration? Well, I... I've been criticized for being too harsh on poor Zbigniew Brzezinski, but, but actually since the book has come out, I've had not one, but just multiple uh, communications from former Carter aides saying, I got that exactly right. That Zbig was difficult, arrogant, um, just relentless in pushing his worldview. Right. very much the worldview of a Polish aristocrat, the son of a Polish diplomat, uh, who, you know, uh, looked at the world through the the lens of the Cold War and and his hatred of the Russians. Yeah. <laughs> and so he saw, you know, any issue, whether it was the Middle East or China or the problems of Central America, he saw that those issues through the lens of, you know, how can we hurt the Russians in this way? Right, right. And this this introduced a distortion. And, uh, you know, Carter, what what I couldn't figure out for the longest time, and and it's still sort of a mystery, is why he tolerated Zbigniew Brzezinski's, because he basically disagreed with Brzezinski's worldview. He sided more often with his Secretary of State, Cy Vance. Mm-hmm. Um, but Carter was, he enjoyed sparring intellectually with, with Brzezinski, even though he disagreed with him. And uh, early in, the, in, in that first year in the White House, I remember at one point, you know, Brzezinski is constantly sending Carter memos, uh, telling him, you've got to be tough. You've got to send a message to the Russians and uh, maybe do something militaristic. And Carter would write in the margins of that memo, like Mayaguez, the famous incident off the coast of Cambodia that led, that involved U.S. military force all for nothing. It was uh, a disaster that led to the loss of life needlessly. And so Carter was very, of, he had a strong aversion to using military force. Right. And Brzezinski was constantly trying to get him to use American military power in a way that Carter thought was dangerous. Right. You definitely uh, were not alone in that view. Um, you quoted uh, Mississippian Hiding Carter, who was a State Department spokesman um, in the Carter administration. He said it was difficult to know from afar why and how the president placed so much value on Brzezinski, a second-rate thinker in a field infested with posers and careerists. <laughs> he has never let consistency get in the way of 
self-promotion or old theories impede new policy acrobatics. I love that quote. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty great. It's pretty great. Um, so if there's a villain in the book, it's Brzezinski. And if there's a hero, it's Miss Lillian Carter, uh, Carter's mother, uh, who was a lifelong advocate for racial justice, joined the Peace Corps at age 67 and went to India and had a great sense of humor and a sharp tongue. Uh, talk about Miss Lillian. Well, she's just a wonderful character and very much in the tradition of the Southern eccentric old lady who can break all the social social norms and rules and get away with it and is tolerated because everyone regards her as eccentric. (laughs) But, uh, you know, so she would go around and I think in 1964, she was in charge of the uh, Lyndon Johnson campaign for president in South Georgia. And uh, growing up, you know, young Jimmy Carter witnessed his his mother telling neighbors that Abraham Lincoln was a great man. And, you know, of course, you (laughs) you didn't often hear that from the South in the 1920s or 30s. So she was very outspoken. You know, a real contrast, too, from his father, who was the harsh traditional disciplinarian, a uh, white man who believed in white supremacy. And that was, you know, clearly not what Miss Lillian thought. And Carter was clearly, Jimmy Carter was clearly heavily influenced by Miss Lillian. Uh Yes. uh, Yeah, that's clear. So let's talk about some of his um, big foreign policy uh, issues during his administration. 1978, in an effort to bring peace to the Middle East, he hosted Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin, Begin at Camp David uh, for days and days of negotiations um, that led to the Camp David Accords. And you give a fascinating play-by-play account, uh, really in-depth, of those days um, that shows Carter to be tough and resourceful and creative and flexible, you know, not, not necessarily the way we had thought of him up until that point. Um, talk about the, the Camp David negotiations, if you would. Well, you know, Carter actually had quite a few foreign policy achievements. You know, he normalized relations with China. He negotiated the SALT II arms control agreement with the Soviets. Um, but I think sort of in retrospect, historians look at those two events and say, well, these things would have happened anyway. Um, but you come to Camp David in the Middle East, and, and that would not have happened without Jimmy Carter. It was his personal diplomacy. It was, it was just an amazing performance to bring these two ardent adversaries, enemies, Menachem Begin of Israel and Anwar Sadat of Egypt together for 13 days at Camp David. And, you know, they, they refused, after the first day, they couldn't talk to each other. So Carter right. would be going back and forth between the various cabins, relaying their, <clears throat> their negotiating positions and trying to narrow their differences. And, you know, it broke down several times, uh, both, Sadat and Begin at one point or another called for the helicopter to leave. Mm-hmm. 
But Carter was would always find some way to keep them there and keep them in play. And he finally negotiated uh, what we call the Camp David Accords, which uh, 10 months later led in the spring of 79 to uh, an actual peace treaty between Israel and Egypt. And I, you know, this story has been told in some detail before, but I bring new sources to it. And uh, I also, I think, explain in a new way how Carter ardently believed that he had negotiated not just a separate peace between Israel and Egypt, but actually the makings of a comprehensive peace that would include the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. He believed, and I argue quite new evidence that Carter believed that he had gotten Menachem Begin to agree to a five-year freeze on all the settlements in the West Bank. And, you know, at the time, there were only about 20,000 settlers in the West Bank. Today, there are over 700,000. And Carter thinks that he got Begin to agree to a five-year settlement, a freeze of the settlements. And if that had happened, we wouldn't be in this position today. But Begin quickly reneged within yeah. days. And, uh, you know, he either, Begin, I argue, either lied or he just misled the president. Mm-hmm. And Carter believes that he was misled or lied to. And for 40 years, he's been trying to push the Israelis to stop building those damn settlements because he yeah. understood that they were the obstacle to uh, a really comprehensive peace. And that if they continue to uh, build more settlements and uh, in, in the West Bank, there'll be no opportunity for a two-state solution, and this will change the nature of the Israeli state. And, you know, and here we are. It's, he, he turns out to have been very prophetic. Do you think that work was his greatest accomplishment? Well, in the, in the field of foreign affairs, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was also, uh, ironically, it's both his biggest accomplishment and it's his greatest disappointment, too, because of what I've just been arguing, that it, it, right. it failed to actually solve the Palestinian issue. Yeah. Begin comes off as even more difficult than Carter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Let's talk about Iran. Uh, Carter decided under great pressure uh, to allow the deposed Shah of Iran into the U.S. to receive medical treatment. And that prompted the uh, students in uh, Iran to overrun the embassy and take 60-some hostages um, in 1979. Uh, That really shaped and hung over the rest of his presidency. Yeah, no, it was... It, it probably explains why he didn't get a second term. Um, it, it was a disaster. Um, but I argue in the book that if you look at what was happening in Iran, uh, there was nothing that Carter could have done to save the Shah. The right. revolution was a very organic thing. It was in the making for years, and it just happened on his watch in late 78, early 79. And again, coming back to Zbig Brzezinski, his national security advisor, um, Zbig, you know, was pushing Carter to try to have a coup d'etat, have the military crack down. 
Uh, this was completely unrealistic. And, and then after Khomeini came to power and began to cement his rule and create this theocratic republic, Islamic republic, Brzezinski and Henry Kissinger and David Rockefeller and John McCloy, the powerful Wall Street journal, uh, Wall, Wall Street lawyer connected to the Rockefellers, they actually formed a organization and they gave it the title Project Alpha. And they allocated tens of thousands of dollars to this and hired a publicist. And each of them set up on a weekly basis a calendar that so that each one of them, Henry Kissinger or David Rockefeller would personally lobby some high-ranking member of the Carter administration to give the Shah a political asylum. Recall the Shah had lost power, but he hadn't come to America right away. He'd gone to Egypt and then Panama. And, and so his friends, Rockefeller and Kissinger, were just relentless in lobbying Carter to give the Shah political asylum. And Carter said no repeatedly. And you can see in his personal diary, he, his concern was that if he gave the Shah political asylum and he came to America, this would inflame passions again in Iran, and perhaps our embassy would be threatened and hostages would be taken. <laughs> and of course, he was right. right. Anyway, he resisted these entreaties for, you know, throughout 1979 until in late October, Cy Vance finally changed his mind because the, he was given the information that the Shah was sick with cancer and needed treatments at Sloan Kettering in New York. And, and of course, this actually turned out to not be the, it was bad information. He could have gotten treatment elsewhere for, for his pro medical problems. But in any case, Carter finally relented and agreed to, the Shah could come. And then, of course, a few days later, the embassy was seized. And that mm -hmm. crisis, the hostage crisis, uh, lasted 444 days, and it, you know, was very debilitating politically. Right. And then particularly when 1980, uh, Carter launched a, a rescue attempt that failed spectacularly and just made things worse. Made things even worse. And of course, Big Brzezinski was the guy who was planning <laughs> <laughs> that helicopter rescue mission and was uh, relentless again in, in lobbying Carter to do something in a military way. And again, Carter resisted for many months, but out of frustration, finally in April of 1980, he gave the go ahead. And of course, it was such a complicated right. uh, operation. It was, I, I argue that it was doomed to failure. It was never mm -hmm. going to succeed. Yeah. And then Iran got him back by uh, hanging on to the hostages until right after Reagan's inauguration. Down to the minute. Down to the minute. <laughs> I remember the, you know, television coverage all that day from the inauguration to the hostages. And uh, it, it just was, it was very clearly pointed. Well, that brings us to the uh, October surprise, which I devote a small chapter to in, in the biography. Um, and again, this is a controversial chapter, but I argue that William Casey, Ronald Reagan's campaign manager, traveled secretly to Madrid, Spain in July, late July of 1980, and met with a representative of the Ayatollah Khomeini and essentially 
suggested that the Iranians should go slow on releasing the hostages because they get a better deal from his guy, Ronald Reagan. Now, I don't think Reagan himself was privy to this. This was sort of an off-the-book operation done by Casey himself, who was a old OSS mm-hmm. intelligence operative and loved cloak-and-dagger stuff mm-hmm. and was perfectly capable of doing something like this. But it was, you know, if it did happen, and I have some good documentary evidence that proves that he did go to Madrid, Spain, for purposes unknown, according to us. Fascinating. It's just, it's an incredible episode. And if it happened, it probably led to the prolonging the hostage crisis. Right. Muddying the waters of the negotiations that Carter was involved in trying to get the release of the hostages. And, uh, you know, Casey succeeded in denying uh, Carter the, the opportunity for a October surprise, a release of the right just, just before the election, which might have made a big difference because the election, right. you know, was actually pretty close. People forget they remember a landslide and it was a landslide in the Electoral College. But up until two weeks before the November 80 election, Carter was within striking distance. He was within five points in the polls, which is often the margin of error. And, uh, you know, if if he had been able to get the hostages released, if Ted Kennedy hadn't run against him, <laughs> another episode in, uh, in a very terrible year in 1980, uh, you know, Carter could have, might, might have gotten reelected and history would have been very different. Right. You point out that it's tough to run for re-election when even all of his victories were politically unpopular. Panama Canal Treaty, SALT II, and Camp David. But you said you think that the the deciding factor was the hostages. I think the hostages. Uh, You know, he, Carter, much to the annoyment of his wife, Rosalind, who actually had a very smart political nose and uh, was constantly arguing with Jimmy, you know, you've got to pay more attention to the politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, can't you postpone, she at one point, can't you postpone the Panama Canal Treaty until your second term? And Carter said, no, I've got to do the right thing. And this was his attitude. You know, he, he could have, as we've discussed, he could be very ruthless politically mm-hmm. in achieving power and winning power and campaigning. But he had this... Uh, righteous sensibility about himself that compelled him to sort of, once he was in the Oval Office, he was determined to simply do the right thing and ignore the politics. He was constantly telling his aides, you know, don't talk to me about the politics. Tell me, give me the facts on X or Y issue and let me deal with the politics. Well, he didn't want to deal with the politics. (laughs) (laughs) He, He was... Let so, me ignore the politics. Yeah. So he was a very unusual politician in that way. You know, you know in 76, he won the presidency with white rural Southern voters, with African-American voters, with Jewish American voters, labor households, you know, union household, Americans who were members of labor unions voted by a majority for him. And with the exception of the African-American community, he lost all of those constituencies in 1980, just four years Mm -hmm. later. And, you know, you look at like the Jewish-American community, every Democratic presidential candidate 
routinely takes 70, 80% of the Jewish vote. And Jimmy Carter did in 1976, he got 72% of it. And in 1980, he got only 45%. This is despite the fact that he had done Camp David. He had taken Egypt off the battlefield for Israel. But he was perceived as being anti-Israeli. Right. Because he had continued to try to push the Israelis on the settlements issue. Mm-hmm. You know, politicians like Ed Koch went after him, the mayor of New York, the very feisty and vocal mayor, went after Carter on, on this issue. And uh, a lot of Jewish American voters just sat out the election or voted for Ronald Reagan. Mm-hmm. Uh, very ironic. Likewise, you know, his own home base, the South, turned its back on him. Uh, right. Jimmy Carter was too good for them. <laughs> Well, that brings me to um, your closing words in the book. I found fascinating. Perhaps Carter was too much of a Georgian Yankee for the New South and too much of a populist Southerner for the North. In either case, his presidency was ahead of the times. Carter's rise to power had offered hope for reconciliation between North and South and hope for healing of the racial divide. His loss signaled that the country was reverting to a new era of harsh partisanship, political division, and extremism. It was a tragic narrative of defeat familiar to any Southerner. So talk about the connection between Carter's loss and the tragic narrative of defeat. Well, I think, you know, again, coming back to Jimmy Carter's childhood, he he really did grow up metaphorically just a few years after the Civil War. Uh, you know, his that was that memory of defeat and occupation was was something that Carter himself didn't experience, but he lived it vicariously. You know, people talked about the defeat uh, throughout his childhood. He was very much aware of it. And this gave him a sort of sense of uh, a, a pragmatic streak to him. You know, he understood that not all wars end in victory. Yeah. <laughs> and he... As I think he's the first American president who sort of didn't believe in this notion of American exceptionalism, Mm -hmm. uh, which is astonishing, you know, for an American politician. He brought a, and I sort of admire him deeply for this. He he brought a sort of realism to the office and an awareness of limits. Um, So, you know, this could translate into everything from understanding that we don't have money for everything. He was kind of a fiscal, small town, fiscal conservative uh, to his awareness of limits with regard to the environment. Uh, He was a big environmentalist, a sort of early climate change advocate. And, uh, And in terms of foreign policy, it explains his reluctance to use military force, even though he'd been a Navy man, he'd had a career seven years in the Navy, mm-hmm. a graduate of the Naval Academy, protege of Admiral Rickover. Um, but, you know, he'd quit the Navy after seven years, partly because his father suddenly died and he felt he needed to come back to the family farm. Um, but also because he, as he told one of his aides, Peter Bourne, he just 
he wondered whether he he was it was the right thing for him to devote his life to weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think all of this was informed by his southern roots and realism, his awareness that of defeat and occupation and uh it's it's a very southern story at least to my mind as this northern yankee (laughs) Uh, (laughs) i think you make a good case well let's uh leave carter aside for a minute and uh i want to hear a little bit about your um your work as executive director of the leon levy center for biography Uh, oh well and read a lot of them and so i was uh interested in that well, I, I, biography is, I think, just the best form of history. It's very accessible. Yeah. It draws the reader in. It's, it's a very, you know, it's a human story that most people can understand. And they, you read a good biography, and along the way, you, you learn a lot of history. Anyway, I, I, I've had this terrific gig for the last four years as the director of the Leon Levy Center for Biography in New York City, which is a wholly unique institution. There's no mm-hmm. other center devoted to promoting the art and craft of biography. Um, and what we do is simply uh, award five or six very generous fellowships every year to working biographers. They can be academics or journalistic background or simply first-time biographers, and they get a fellowship of $72,000 and uh, office space and access to library resources and uh, an opportunity to sort of sit around once a month in a seminar and talk with other biographers about their mutual problems. Mm -hmm. And uh, on top of that, we put... We host, oh, 15 or 20 events a year where we invite a biographer to talk about their new book. That's wonderful. It's a great, great program. And it's uh, wholly funded by a one woman who just loves biography. Um, Good for her. A a very enlightened billionaire, Shelby Uh White. So uh, it's it's been going for since 2007, and mm-hmm. I've had the the honor to direct it for the last four years. So it's been been a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to know it's out there. A lot of the biographies I read are of um, artists and writers, and so there's there's you know a lot of uh, adultery and madness and drugs, and and yours was was very different. Um, Nothing along those lines except uh, Willie Nelson smoking weed on the roof of the White White House. <laughs> right, <part> yeah, <laughs> yeah we, there is a little weed smoking in the White House, courtesy of the not Carter by Carter, <laughs> not by Carter, but by the Sons. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, what do you like to read? Oh, I read a lot of biographies. Still, just finished reading this book, which is a biography of <laughs> yes, uh, a, an American woman who was actually executed beheaded by on the personal orders of Hitler for being a spy, the only American woman. Yeah. I, I, I have to confess. I read um, very little fiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, My wife says that I'm uh, socially ignorant as a result. (laughs) (laughs) You get get a lot from a biography about human nature. Well, you know, I, I, I like to say that, 
you know, a good biography is actually uh, a novel. It's telling, you know, the biographer's point of view about this person's life story. Mm -hmm. um, and the only difference is that it's, it's got a lot of footnotes. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, what, which biographies do you wish you had written? What are the great ones? You know, I do admire Robert Caro's. Yes. Four volumes now. Is he working on I his think it's like six? Six. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I could never have done five volumes on Jimmy Carter. <laughs> Caro committed. But, uh, you know, Caro is sort of in, in a league all to himself in that way. Mm -hmm. But there are, you know, I also, you know, in my own career, I've made a point. What what draws me to biography is trying to understand sort of how power works in America. So my first biography was on John McCloy, this powerful Wall Street lawyer, who sort of seemed to grease the worlds between corporate America and the legal field and foundations and big government and yeah, so I'm interested in how power works. And, I, you know, for the same reason, I, I did a biography of the Bundy brothers, William and George Bundy, mm -hmm. um, because I wanted to understand the Vietnam War. And they, mm -hmm. these two brothers were major architects of the war, and they were liberals. And mm -hmm. I couldn't understand as a young man how these, you know, Harvard and Yale trained liberals could have gotten us into this terrible tragic war that went on and on and so you know I, I write for myself in the first instance you know to try to simply understand for myself what happened and if I along the way persuade a few people to read the book too <laughs> people will read the outlier it's a, a beautifully written really thoughtful uh complex and fascinating book and uh I hope everyone who is listening who hasn't read it yet will pick it up. And it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Kai. Thank you, Katie, for having me. Absolutely. Right on Mississippi is produced in partnership with Mississippi Public Broadcasting for the Mississippi Book Festival, the South's literary lawn party. Yeah.